2: Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome on stage, your chairman for tonight, Mr Andy Person. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Slacktivist Action Group. At the last episode, we were talking about going on the anti-racism march, having just been on the Junior Doctors' March. And I did go on the anti-racism march, And to be honest, it seemed to be quite a lot of people who'd been on the Junior Doctors' March. You know, obviously quite a lot of junior doctors into anti-racism, or either that or quite a lot of anti-racism campaigners who got warmed up previously with the Doctors' March. But I think probably most likely just a lot of people who just love marching. (laughs) And it worked out okay, because, you know, you may have seen that the doctors, their dispute is ongoing, so it looks like we may need to do... Another doctor's march. Now, I don't personally mind that, because obviously from the first march, uh, it's not easy, is it, to get to see a doctor these days? And there was bloody hundreds on the march. (laughs) So having another march not a problem for me. I'm just going to view that as a follow-up appointment, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Obviously, with the anti-racism march, that was a chance, wasn't it, to express the opinion that the victims... Of terrorism should not be treated as the perpetrators of terrorism. Obviously, Nigel Farage, he's going to be excited by the possibilities now seeing Donald Trump's success over in America. And also, given that Alan Sugar is supposed to be thinking about leaving The Apprentice, Nigel Farage will be thinking he needs to get his own reality TV series like The Apprentice. Imagine him hosting that show. Be fairly short episodes, wouldn't it? Are you Bulgarian? You're fired. (laughs) He'd be so excited about firing people, he'd probably fire himself, wouldn't he? But it'd be okay, because two days later, he'd give himself his job back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the man who loves going on holiday to France, loves Belgian beer, and is married to a German. But he hates Europe, hates Europe, but he's quite (laughs) happy to eat it, sleep it, and drink it, ladies and gentlemen. This is the man who's been an MP, an MEP, over in Brussels for the European Parliament for 17 years. He talks about immigrants, but he's quite happy to go over there, take their jobs and sleep with their women. But he doesn't seem able to see the irony of the situation. And often he likes to appear as the man of the people, doesn't he? There being photographed smoking and drinking. Now, I personally don't mind to see him on the television smoking and drinking because that means to me that probably his time on this planet may be limited. (laughs) He's certainly going to have to spend some time, you think, in the NHS. And given that a third of all NHS staff are now immigrants, I'm thinking, good luck to Nigel Farage. <laughs> and this idea that he is, in fact, a man of the people, is obviously bollocks, isn't it? If he was really a man of the people, he wouldn't be called Nigel Farage, would he? He'd be called Nigel Farage, like garage, not garage. <laughs> I mean, maybe he lives in a village... In a cottage where he enjoys a sausage. I don't know, ladies and gentlemen. The trouble is, isn't it? All of these people, they come over here and they can't pronounce our words. It's a bloody outrage. That's what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome ex-Energy Secretary of the Coalition, Ed Davey, General Secretary of the Trade Union Equity, Christine Payne, and ex-Labour Press Chief, Aisha Hazarika. To make us feel better about ourselves, if we could uh, just maybe start off by um, admitting some of the things that we're a bit slack about so the, the group can bond with us. So, Aisha, let's start with you. What, what are you, in an ideal world, what would you be maybe a tad less slack about?
3: Doing laundry. <laughs> I'm so slack at doing laundry. I've basically got like an EU laundry mountain in my house, and I'm also really slack about eating vegetables. I haven't eaten anything green for quite a long time, basically. Obviously,
2: now you're talking about lack of laundry. Christine yeah. is looking at you slightly nervously now.
3: <laughs> I do smell of it, Christine. <laughs>
2: It's a confession. There we go. And what about you, Christine?
3: Well, I've thought long and
1: hard about this, and I'm going to be completely honest. Yes. In an ideal world, I would change my bed more often. Do you, do you actually mean your bed? I mean, or, I change mean my sheets. Your sheets? Change sheets. my sheets. I would. Ch- I, I was going to say,
2: I don't know how often you change your bed, but you can <laughs> tend to get quite a lot it's of use out of every those. Every five
1: years, isn't it? Every eight years. I
2: think that's just the mattress, isn't it? Every five years, not the bed itself. <laughs> no, the
1: sheets. The sheets. Yeah. And, the and that is a long
2: time. But then we don't know how often Aisha does the laundry, do we? So. <laughs> don't uh, want to
1: know. <laughs> so. Uh, well, I think my my reason for wanting to do that is the same as Ayesha's. That I I don't like. Doing the laundry, I don't like having to change and then wash them and then dry them and then iron them and put them back.
2: I think but, that's very reasonable.
1: I love clean sheets. So Ed, how
2: is your personal hygiene? Is it? <laughs> or, or, or,
1: <laughs> well, you,
2: you can tell, can't you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not quite close enough. I'll come come <laughs> and give the armpit test in a minute. Obviously, <laughs> what about your slackness, Ed?
0: Well, my serious slackness is I should learn sign language to talk to my little boy. But my Less serious slacktivist is that I need to be more public and rude about the illiberals uh,
2: around our world, who are scary. That was the illiberals was rather it. than the liberals. Yeah, I, I, I'm just checking that that's what... <laughs> I thought you were suddenly thinking you've been too nice to all your fellow liberals and you thought, there's my opportunity. I need to slack them off and tell them what I really think. In which case, the slacktivist action group is going to go flying tonight, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's, let's crack on with that, the... Uh, in some ways been, I'm sure, a a difficult time for you, Ed, post-election. The electorate, in some sections, were keen to punish the Lib Dems for having gone into sort of coalition with the Conservatives, and they punished you by, in fact, electing the Conservatives. Some sections were worried about Scottish Nationalists getting more power, so they elected a government who's going to hold a referendum that could well end up giving the Scottish Nationalists more power. People are idiots, aren't they, Ed?
0: Well, it's a great voting system, isn't it?
2: Well, it, we, really, we did have a chance it, to reform it, but yeah. sadly we didn't get enough yeah. people on board.
0: No, well, um, I'm not going to give you a PR stuff tonight. but, um, off wibbles if it, you're not sure. It. It, it, was, it, was, it was a painful election, let's yes. face it. Yeah. Um, we lost a lot of votes on the centre-left for going to intercollegiate with the Tories and obviously tuition fees and stuff like that. But we lost a lot of votes. I lost my seat because the Tories ran a scare campaign very effectively with 30 million quid they spent against the Liberal Democrats, just against us, over two years, to, to send a scare message that if they voted Lib Dem, people like me, Vince Cable and so on, that you get Ed Miliband and the SNP. And that was their scare story, and it, it worked, I'm afraid.
2: Well, in terms of the Scottish Nationalists, obviously a certain amount of sympathy for Nick Clegg, because he, he'd actually said, hadn't he, that he wanted to create three-party politics... And in the end, he achieved his aim, just sadly, his wasn't one yeah, of them. Yeah, eh? yeah.
0: yeah thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah uh, he did, um, but uh, he really didn't mean that lot. No. Um, and, and the real worry is um, the SNP could get their, their ultimate victory if we vote to leave the EU, because if we vote to leave the EU, Scotland will go independent. I mean, it's obvious.
2: Yeah, well, obviously, you, you are a, a passionate European, and if Scotland do go, then there must be a chance that Northern Ireland will also leave, that Wales, maybe even Yorkshire, will go as well. Because we talk about. Well, no, not, that's
0: the positive side, obviously.
2: You know. <laughs> Ed, Ed not looking for a seat in the Yorkshire area. Um, but, the, you know, we talk about the United Kingdom, but we're not even. England's not even united, is it? In, in the sense that the North English don't really like the South English. North East English don't like the North West English. North East North English don't like the North East South English.
0: Chelsea Chelsea don't like Tottenham.
2: That's right. Yeah, no, all yeah. of that. Surbiton not that fond of Yule or wherever. <laughs> Keep it on a local <laughs> basis. Don't talk about Yule. Yule, that's it. <laughs>
0: I, I think we actually we are more united to be serious for a minute. And I think what, what unites us is really important. I think there is a something called Britishness. I think there is something that we should be proud of in the United Kingdom. And I think and what would you describe as about Britishness?
2: Companies. Would you think something like maybe not wanting to do your washing as often as? Well, oh, that is
0: obviously top of the list. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you were described. Uh, I saw a quote saying from you that in terms of the Liberals. Obviously, if you're in the middle of the road, there's a chance that you'll get run over. You're quoted as saying, we were in the middle of the road, we didn't have a visibility jacket, we definitely got run over. A political version of a hedgehog, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, it's basically our manifesto was crap.
2: Right, well, no, that, I mean... Well, I mean... This was the sort of... Having a go at the Liberal talk we were looking forward to, isn't it, really? No, I mean, actually, in, inside the covers was quite good. OK. But the front
0: cover was really crap. Because we had five things we were saying to people. One was we were going to cut the deficit, which gets Liberal Democrats supporters out of bed every morning with <laughs> the you know, let's cut the deficit. If you wanted that, you'd vote Osborne, because he really wants to do it, like, you know. The second thing was something we were proud of, which was raising the tax allowance, take low paid people out of tax. But by then, our policy had been adopted by the Tories and UKIP. So we weren't be distinctive, were we? We weren't really going to run after UKIP voters. The third thing was $8 billion on the NHS. I'm sure you all remember this, you because know, it was a really interesting uh, manifesto. The third thing we were saying was $8 billion on the NHS, as was the Labour Party, the Tory Party and everybody but everyone else. The fourth thing was ring-fencing education from spending cuts, which obviously really gets people going, because they don't understand what the f- ring-fencing means... <laughs> Uh, and the fifth thing was something on the environment which I was quite keen on because I put it there but no one talked about it so no one heard about it so it was a really crap front page of the manifesto and we, it's a real shame because at elections parties like the Liberal Democrats have a chance to talk about uh, ourselves about being liberals what liberalism, why it's important to be liberal in so many aspects of your life and we didn't do that and the
2: manifesto was a sort of coalition negotiating document and it was crap it backfired in the sense that 57 MPs are tragic, you know, in, in the way that it, it came down to, to eight MPs, a party that had been in government and now able to have their sort of parliamentary meetings in a Citroen Picasso. That is... That is well, it used to be a mini, so if we come on. Yeah, yeah. Mini back in the old days, <laughs> up, up to a sort of a proper bus and then, then back down to a minibus. It must have been tragic, especially now, as you see Corbyn going more to the left and having problems with, you know, lots of his MPs not agreeing with him, Cameron having loads of problems over Europe, Britain crying out for a truly centrist party, and you, you're not, you know, in a position to capitalise, necessarily. Tim Frown having the problem that nobody seems to really know who he is.
0: Listen, I joined the Lib Dems when we were 4% in the opinion polls. So it wasn't a careerist move, right? Um, and we are on 8% now, so we're double when I joined. So obviously a huge success. The point I'm trying to make is there are ups and downs in politics. Yeah. And you just have to take with them. And, you know, the electorate chuck you out bring you back. You've just got to have the confidence. So we've got to build up from the grassroots, which is bloody hard and takes a lot of time. And we also need an issue. We need an issue where we can be distinctive on that resonate. And they don't come along very often where we can absolutely be sure that it's going to get reported. Because no one's going to report us for what Liberal Democrats think. They're going to report us for what we think about something in the news that's being reported anyway, where we have a distinctive liberal position. And we can't create that because it's reactive by necessity. So what was the biggest thing in the last 15 years that we didn't create, but actually we had a distinctive position on, which we felt very strongly about? And it was the Iraq Iraq war. We did not cause the Iraq war, ladies and gentlemen, to get popular, let me tell you. But we had a distinctive position we, we, we really, really believed in. OK. Um, so something could come along. I don't know what it's going to be. It could be foreign policy. It could be something to do with national politics. And sometimes we have to think more carefully and, and creatively about how we, we get onto that.
2: So- Certainly. Is Europe something that could help the Lib Dems? Obviously, passionate Europeans throughout the party. And the Leave campaign, is. You know they've got two separate Leave campaigns. One of the arguments against the European Union is all the bureaucracy that it is. Different factions struggling to work together, and yet the Leave campaign have got two campaigns when one would obviously do. And the reason they've got two campaigns is they can't work together. You're thinking they'd be perfect if it stayed in Europe in some ways.
0: <laughs> well i i can't say how much i distest the leave campaign because please do it, it just it's just full of lies and deeply unpatriotic my view uh, the, the, your question was is it good for the lib dems well if we leave europe i think it's just bad for our country and bad for liberalism in this country and europe and therefore the world so that would be a huge step back for what we for our values um, is it a chance if we win to build, yes, but actually not because of Europe itself, but because the Tory party are tearing themselves apart? Um, I mean, my dream is that we win uh, obviously and but win by you know a comfortable margin, but not so much that the Tory party think that the issue is settled, and they continue tearing themselves apart because that creates an opportunity for progressive parties.
2: Election day was a very sad occasion, personally, in terms of you know you realize that MPs not only can they see their party decimated but that's your job gone there it seems incredibly hard way to earn a living that on one day you can lose your job and then almost immediately you've got to go on national television and congratulate them who's just taken your job and more than that you've also got to thank the police for letting that person take your job quite as smoothly as they just have (laughs) It, it is a harsh business politics. Yeah, yeah, but, I
0: mean, I got elected in 97 when I didn't expect to, uh, on a majority of 56 votes after three recounts. So I was lucky to get in there. Um, stayed around for 18 years. I didn't expect to lose, actually. The Tories didn't expect they are going to win, but uh, they did. But I took a pay cut when I got elected, and I'm earning more now after losing my seat. So it's not about a job or finances. That's not what you do it for. Despite, you know, everyone thinks you're... Really, I mean, I was told on the doorsteps of Surbiton that I was a millionaire. <laughs> That's just not true. So I'm, you know, I'm working less hard, I'm earning more money, you, I'm seeing you, my family. So for, you know, there are some upsides of losing my
2: seat. Well, it, it's funny, because I, I read that you're working, doing at least some work as an energy advisor for a law firm which your brother is a part of. So you did, in fact, leave politics to spend more time with your family.
0: (laughs) He may even be here tonight. He promised he was coming, actually. Um, But um, but I'm I'm loving it because I'm I'm chairman of a community energy company which is building renewable energy plants around the UK which are going to be owned by the local community. Community energy is something I care passionately about. I'm doing a load of work in renewable energy, which is one of the reasons I got into politics and joined the Lib Dems in the first place because the environment is one of my big motivators. I read Seeing Green by Jonathan Porritt when I was about 19, and I just thought, right, the environment is a critical part of what I believe in, and, and there's some very serious issues. Because the environment interrelates with social justice and world justice, and you know if we don't tackle climate change, we're going to be a, a world of conflict and a world of, of greater poverty. So you know, all those sorts of things come together uh, for me, and therefore... You know, being able to do it outside of government, which you can do,
2: is, is something quite exciting. And it must be, as, as the Energy Secretary, as was, now watching the coalition policies somewhat changed by the Conservative government. I mean, onshore wind, they took the subsidy away a year early and it made a difference, supposedly, 30 pence to the average consumer's bill. And, you, you know, nobody will have noticed the difference. You know, people weren't looking at their bill going, oh, well, look... I, mean, I can't see the difference, but I did plug my phone in one more time. This has made a real difference. It, it seems the wrong message to be giving out.
0: Well, you won't be surprised. If, no, I think their energy policy is completely utterly rubbish. You know, they're talking about small modular reactors a nuclear reactor in every town. You know, so the terrorists have lots of targets to go for. Really good idea. And you know, I, I personally believe the future is energy efficiency, renewable energy. It may be some of the low carbon things as well. I'm not, I'm not ideological about that, but I personally think some renewable uh, energy, energy efficiency, and they're cutting back on both those things.
2: And in, you, in terms of fracking, your you were you very much. Uh, uh, slowly, slowly does it. Let's you know see see where the technology goes. If I'm, you know, not paraphrasing your your policy yeah. when you were there. In some ways, obviously the Conservatives are very keen on fracking. But given you know we've all seen on YouTube the problems that they've had in America, where people have been the gas contamination, people turning on their taps and being able to light the water, on, on their taps. And no, you you true, don't expect that, do you? It's not, no, you've got a fire in your house and you suddenly turn on the tap yeah, to get some well, water and the whole fucking don't, place goes up. Don't,
0: don't believe everything you see on YouTube, I think. Well, uh, there's but, so but, many of them, no, I don't
2: think everybody's faked it, I'll be honest about that. Well,
0: there are three positions you can take on fracking. You can either think it's the best thing since sliced bread, like George Osborne does. I think he wants to sniff the gas, he's so keen on it. <laughs> Um, uh, on, the, on the other side, you've got the Greens, who seem to think of the fundamental Greens. There's actually a lot of Greens who support it, but there's some Greens who think it's devil incarnate. And there's people like me who think it's a, it's just a technology. Let's do it cautiously. F- much better regulation than the States. The States did not having any regulation. We've got the toughest regulations I- in the world. And there's a serious issue, right? I mean, if you want to be really tedious about it. Up until 2003, we produced all our own gas from the North Sea. And since 2003, we've been a net importer. By 2030, even if we're going as green as we possibly can, which I like to do, because most of our gas is for heating and actually replacing 24 million gas boilers, is going to take a little bit of a while, um, we're going to be importing about 70% of our gas by 2030. Increasingly, we might have to be turning to places like Russia for our gas. If we can produce a bit more gas in the UK safely and environmentally friendly, I'm not against that, right? I just think you should look at the facts, basically.
2: And in, in terms of this Conservative government with China for the nuclear deal, they're going to pay them more than onshore wind power, the more than renewables. You know, And you're thinking, well, if we were talking about dodgy powers, giving, given that Chinese cyber hackers have paralysed various western companies do we really want, if it all goes tits up with China, them to be in remote access to a nuclear facility on our soil? Thank you very much oh look at that, yeah. oh. seven claps ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the slacktivist action group has been motivated <laughs> here we go well, listen I'll
0: tell you the story that's not been written and I can tell it you here tonight, exclusive.
2: exclusive exclusive ladies and gentlemen,
0: What well, was how keen Mr Cameron was on getting Rosatom, that's the Russian nuclear company to come to the UK And I didn't think that was a very good idea.
2: So, Aisha, um, you were, um, I believe, uh, press chief to to Ed Miliband. You're now going back to comedy. And uh, I'm sure the audience would love to know what is the difference between those (laughs)
3: those
2: two particular jobs.
3: It is a question I ask myself a lot. (laughs) There's less humour now, I can tell you.
2: Tell me if I'm wrong, but I understand you used to help write some of Ed's speeches, including uh, one of the ones where he actually forgot chunks of the speech, I believe... Um, so you, some of your best writing may have, may have not not ever been heard, but I actually heard that speech, and it was an hour long, and it it was my personal opinion that he could have quite happily forgotten a bit more of it.
3: It was a long speech. Um, so I used to help Ed. I used to work for Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown. Actually, and I'm sure you'll agree that all went really massively well. It's <laughs> a huge success. Um, so I used to help Ed prepare for Prime Minister's questions every week, and I also used to help him prepare for big speeches like his conference speech and that particular conference speech was really difficult because we had just come back from the Scottish referendum and I think one of the reasons that he wasn't quite in the right headspace was that we basically would normally spend about a good it's a bit like preparing for a a one-man show you know in terms of like an Edinburgh performance I mean because he used to really memorize the speech and he'd work on the speech for quite a few months before he did it and then he would sort of get it all locked into his head and I mean it's a when it went well it was a it was a great performance and I think people were really impressed that somebody could get up and speak without notes and he spoke very passionately and fluently and sort of you know loved the words but what was hard was when there was lots of other things going on like the Scottish referendum I think we didn't give the speech enough time because he was up campaigning quite a lot towards the end and then he forgot that crucial section on the deficit. I have to say, you didn't really miss that much, to be honest. Yeah. It wasn't, like, that exciting, to be honest, but well, it was important. And in terms of
2: the, the bacon sandwich incident, were you close on that, inviting, <laughs> inviting a whole array of... Press people to to photograph you eating it, and then pulling the most incredible faces, like it's been laced with oh, chili or the temperature of Venus. Or something. I
3: think to be fair, like even Kate Moss eating a bacon sandwich is probably not going to be the most glamorous well, thing. My, probably...
2: my favourite thing was that Nick Clegg was then asked after Ed Miliband had made such a hash of it if he would eat a, a bacon sandwich. Everybody thought he said no, and he had a crack at it, didn't he? He said hadn't learned the lesson at all. He just, oh well, fuck it, I'll have a go. He did it. He uh, did it quite well, as far well as I can remember. Well, he did it on radio, so it was less risk. But then, <laughs>
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's what we should have done with He he didn't seem to be
2: aware that there was a webcam on at the time.
3: (laughs) No, I think that was just a very, 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 very unfortunate moment. He shouldn't have had the sandwich. He shouldn't have been allowed to have the sandwich in front of lots of people. But I think the media had gotten to their head by this point that poor Ed was sort of calamity Ed. You know, every protocol, they were sort of ready to take the piss out of him. And we did have this dinner once. We went to this um, dinner held by all the... Journalists in Westminster. It's called the Correspondence Dinner. It's meant to be a bit like the one that you know Obama does, and they got Ed to speak at it. And we were on the way to it, and he was quite nervous because, like, he was meeting all these journalists, and he had to have like a three-course dinner in front of them. And we were winding him up, and he was going, "What's on the menu?" and We were like, "I think it's linguine." <laughs> And he was like, "You are kidding me." And I was like, oh, "I think it's I think it's spaghetti bolognese." And we were like, "No, actually, it's it's not. Just cut up your food very carefully. Yeah. Put it in like gently. Don't rush anything. Basically, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, nothing starving at the end
3: of that. Yeah. Minute, anyway. he was like, "Oh, can we get McDonald's on the way home, please?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you were also, I believe, involved with the pink bus. The uh, I was to get, for, my, to get sins. More, more for my sins. After all the fury of that, were you tempted to go the whole hog and? Uh, You know, put the car rail out, put a bit of tints on it, a little wand at the top or, or whatever. You know, drive around with it. big eyelashes.
3: Yeah, well, actually, we loved the pink bus. And then um, had we hoped that we got into government and we thought maybe, like, if Harry became Deputy Prime Minister, we could get an aeroplane of it like, you know, Blair Force One. And we thought we could call it a suffragette. <laughs> it <was> like, no. <laughs> 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 but, look, like, the pink bus was a completely, slightly bonkers idea, I do admit it. But it, there was a serious message behind it because... There is still a really massive problem in politics about diversity and about power. And power, and we were talking about this a wee bit before we kind of came on in the, in the wee room out there, power structures and politics are still largely white, male, Oxbridge, and pretty elite. And even though things have really moved on and we have more women in parliament and we have more black and Asian ethnic minority people in parliament, we still have like a massive way to go. And lots of politics is sort of designed for men, by men, and women are just not part of the conversation. So look at the whole thing on the EU referendum at the moment. It's really all men in suits talking about, uh, actually, the future of the Conservative Party. And women are really turned off by politics, generally. Women are particularly turned off... um, I mean, if you look at the EU thing, actually women have a million more votes and they will actually probably swing the referendum... But there are very few women out talking. And it's not, as patru- it's not as simplistic as saying women can just talk to women. But the way politics is conducted is so male. So we thought that we should do a campaign to make sure that we sort of had some, you know, some, a sort of women's campaign. And most campaigns take place around a bus of some description. You know, like the battle bus, like Blair has a battle bus. John Prescott had a bottle bus, he went around punching people on air around the country. So we thought Harriet should have a bus, because she was the senior woman in the Labour Party, we thought it would be a good thing to do, but then we got stuck on the colour, because we thought, we can't have like a red bus, because like red is just Labour, and there's loads of red buses, like, oh, is that the women's bus? No, it's number 24 to Camden. <laughs> we couldn't have a blue bus, we couldn't have a green bus, we couldn't have a yellow bus, we couldn't even have a purple bus, because... Purple is UKIP. So that is where the pink bus idea came from. And we thought we did want to do something as well that was sort of eye catching and different and controversial. Because with the media, and I'm sure Ed and Christine will agree with me, sometimes when you're trying to push a worthy issue in the media, like we try and push women's issues all the time, and the media are just not that interested in it. So we thought if we do something quite controversial, it will get quite a lot of media attention. We didn't. Quite account for how much media attention it was going to get and how much ridicule, but that was the message behind it. Behind all the ridicule, there was a serious message about politics just isn't for men, and this election was about women's votes as well as men's votes. And
2: what's your take on Jeremy Corbyn? Obviously, got a certain amount of stick because none of the top jobs in the shadow cabinet went to women. But I suppose in his defence, he has got more women in his cabinet than men. And if you if you look at the Conservatives, in terms of the top four, there's only Theresa May, and obviously Home Secretary, a notoriously tough job. And you suspect that uh, George Osborne, very keen, that she should go into that yeah. position in the hope that she would she would muck up much more quickly than she has done in some ways.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Conservatives um, talk a good game about about women's issues, but I don't think they can really be trusted. David Cameron's just appointed a man to lead a review into getting more women onto boards and has got a woman as the deputy. In Scotland, they have just selected more men called Morris than women in winnable seats. So the Conservative Party are nowhere on this. But in terms of Labour, what I thought was slightly disappointing, I think it is good that Jeremy has got um, a 50-50 shadow cabinet. And I think, to give credit to Ed Miliband, he is the person who came in and and took that figure up to sort of 45%. So Jeremy has built on that, and that is really good. We've got record numbers of women in the Labour Party because we use positive action. We have all-women shortlists, which, although are controversial, are the things that actually do help get women into Parliament. But the thing I was disappointed was the fact that it's not Jeremy's fault, but there is a male leader, deputy leader. All our uh, mayoral candidates are male. Our general secretary is male. All the top jobs are like the chief of staff, the head of policy, the director of comms are all male. So I think it would have been good if he had given a couple of those big four jobs to women. So, for example, Angela Eagle, who's the shadow business secretary, is absolutely brilliant. She's a really tried and tested performer. She's labour through and through. She's very popular with the members. She was a treasury minister when we were in government. I think it would have been quite symbolic for him to have made her shadow chancellor because no political party has ever appointed a woman to be the chancellor so i think that could be would have been quite a good symbol for him to have done but i think it is good that there's 50 50 but some of those jobs that have been given to women wouldn't equate to being a full government so there's like a a new position called a minister for young people and voter registration that is a really important role but that wouldn't transfer to being like a full cabinet position if we were in government
2: and what about you in terms of you, Ed, are you, uh, are you thinking that you might uh, sneak back um, and have another crack at the, uh, the next election? Are you biding your time at the moment? Are you going to get your visibility jacket and write, write a better manifesto? What's, what's your plans? Well, you don't sneak back because it's quite public. Yeah, well, uh, probably so if you sneak back, your chance of getting so back <laughs> a slim, I would think.
0: <laughs> I haven't made up my mind yet. No. I'm, I'm leaving the option open. Um, uh, at the moment, I'm supporting my wife. She's standing for the London Assembly in May, On the Liberal Democrat list, she's number two. She has a a chance of getting elected if we get 8% of the vote in London. Um, And um, so I'm I'm doing the childcare while she's out campaigning. And that's my priority.
2: Okay, cool. Well, good good luck with all of that. Christine, uh, in in terms of not easy time, I'm guessing to be uh, a trade union leader, given that we've got legislation, trade union legislation, going through Parliament at the moment. Although uh, House of Lords just rejected certain sections of it. in some ways I'm guessing something of a dilemma for a union leader watching what's perceived as an unelected bunch of toffs helping out the workers yes (laughs) (laughs) and your question is well I suppose the question is I mean part of the the bill was to look at how what what turnouts need to be and one of the things that the trade union wanted to say was online voting would help turnouts go higher. Conservatives said, oh, this is rubbish, although they used it for their own purposes. And now looks like the Lords have said, well, we think online voting's fine. Even suggestions that text voting might come in for, um, for certain sections, including the general election. Obviously, there might be some teething difficulties with that, with uh, predictive text or whatever.
1: <laughs> People
2: voting for the Conservatory and the literal demagogues or whatever. Um,
1: LAUGHTER But, you know, great that it's happening. It's great that the trade union movement is getting behind this, is getting behind the opposition, but I think what the uh, Tories have inadvertently done is to unite us in a way that perhaps they hadn't foreseen because who would have expected just under a year ago the Conservative government to mount such a vicious and unwarranted attack on working people in this country, on the pretense that in some way, you know, the industrial relations environment is really bad, that trade unions are in danger of, what, taking over the world, of ruining what they want to achieve. I mean, it's just, it's just nonsense. And I think working people can see it's nonsense, and I can think they can see through the attack. And it's fantastic that the House of Lords are taking this position. I mean, whether we agree with the House of Lords or not, nevertheless, they're there. Yeah, doing and whilst, a good job
2: for the time being. Whilst
1: we have them and they're doing a good job, then we must be grateful of that. Because this is such a vicious attack. And it, it's mounted um, in, in this framework that in some way that this is good for working people, that it's good for, for um, you know, for the country. And it absolutely isn't. So, the trade union movement's getting behind it. My union's behind it, too. Um, and my union, Equity, is a union that where industrial action is, is very rare. But when my members see that their working conditions are literally being attacked and eroded for, for no fault of their own, then they can work in a very collective way. And we saw that at the English National Opera. I don't know how many of you have... Been following that, but the English National Opera um, had its grant cut by five million pounds by Arts Council England. There are forty-four members of the chorus. I would say, my members would say, the opera is the chorus. The musicians' union would say it's the orchestra as well. But nevertheless, the chorus is really important.
2: Certainly, struggling without it, aren't you?
1: They, they would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be too good without <laughs> the, the, the singers. Um, And when you hear them sing, you know you just appreciate the sound and the art and the fact that they sing in English is really important. It is sort
2: of important, but it never sounds quite so good in English, does it? Just personal opinion, but O Sole Mio seems that much more exciting in a foreign language when you're just going, the sun, the sun is on my face, the sun is on my face, it's on my face. It never sounds quite as exciting to me. I'm not knocking them as, as as an aspect, but just... That point.
1: Yeah, but somebody has to do it and thank goodness they do. Yes. And and they're there and they balloted for industrial action. And I can absolutely say with great pride that had the trade union bill been enforced now, my members voted with ninety seven percent in favour of strike action and action short of strike action. So When the chips were down there, the trade union bill wouldn't have been a deterrent to us. But of course, what we would have wanted, as you quite rightly said, was to encourage full participation. If it's good enough for the Tories, then it should be good enough for working people and they should be entitled to vote online. Um, And that's what the issue that the House of Lords in particular picked up on. And in terms
2: of equity as a trade union, obviously you do deals with... with you know, for everybody in the entire industry, you, you create deals with broadcasters and what have you that benefits the entire industry. And when people say to me, Oh, why should we become equity members? What benefit is it? I say, Well, you're already getting a benefit. And equity needs, needs to shout about this, doesn't it? We, need, we, we do.
1: We, and, and we're one of the few trade unions in, in the country that still has all of its collective agreements in place that we've uh, negotiated over the years. We haven't lost a collective agreement with any of our film and television employers, with any of our theatre employers. You know, where our members work, we tend to have collective agreements. And those agreements have... Um, Changed over the years as television's changed. You know, we're one of the two unions in the world that are negotiating agreements with with Netflix for original production that's been made for showing on Netflix. Now, that's hard because you look at Netflix and you look at the BBC and they're two completely different outlets with completely different needs. And what you have to do is you have to negotiate an agreement that reflects not just what the employers want to do with that product, but what the actors need to get out of it. Um, and we're able to do that, and we're able to do it because our members support us.
2: And one of the Equity's current campaigns is the BBC campaign yeah. Love It or Lose It. One of the things I would encourage Slacktivists to do this month, is, as your task for the month, is to go on the Equity website. There is a petition there. You can sign the petition. Very good Slacktivist work. And obviously, now when you sign, sign a sort of uh, a petition, there is some. Extra thing in the sense that if you get over 100,000 votes, there, you know, there's a chance of a debate in Parliament. Not all of them lead to anything necessarily. We still get to have uh, Spandau Ballet's gold become the national anthem, <laughs> or, although something that Jeremy Corbyn might, might encourage. But <laughs> it, it, I don't know what people think about the uh, you know, national anthem, but uh, we, we could obviously have a debate as to whether... Given that it was written in 1745, my, my feeling was that we could use a new one because it slags off the Scots, doesn't it, in the sixth verse. And I was thinking, what would be popular? I was thinking, maybe the top three UK singles of all time, they are Candle in the Wind 1997 version, also Do They Know It's Christmas, and third one, Bohemian Rhapsody. Now, I don't think the Queen would be very happy, would she, with a Candle in the Wind 1997 version. <laughs> do They Know It's Christmas does seem to be somewhat time-of-year specific, but I, for one, be very happy with a national anthem that included the lyrics, Scaramouche, Scaramouche, Will You Do the Fandango? <laughs> and I don't think anybody would object, necessarily, if when the national anthem, during the guitar break, if everybody started headbanging, uh, <laughs> Deferential to the Queen in its own way, I feel. <laughs>
1: but petitions can work is what i'm Petition, saying they can, they, can. Yeah. they can have an effect they can work yeah of course they can work they can they just give the i mean they give the people that are running the campaign confidence that they've got people who, who care as well who are bothered about it yeah, so if you can sign the, the petition, that would be great. And if you brought back Bohemian Rhapsody as a national anthem, then we might bring back the test card on the BBC. <laughs> that might be worth having that back as well. Well, I mean, at the moment, the BBC's under the hammer,
2: isn't it? People, you know, the government saying, oh, they should have distinctive programming, and basically they should only be doing stuff that nobody else does. But the BBC desperately needs its hits, doesn't it? It needs them. It needs its night managers. It needs its bake-off. It needs its strictly... If if they're looking for a rating smash, they could do worse than getting Tom Hiddleston semi-naked dancing with a cake, and you know ratings would go out out of the world, wouldn't they? They would,
3: yeah, they would. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm just trying to big up
0: official equity policy. No, no.
3: Well, Christian's got to be even-handed between Tom jumping out of a (laughs) cake,
1: but it's not. I mean, the the value of the BBC isn't just about ratings. Mm. You know, it's it's our public service broadcaster. I'm happy for the BBC to fail. I'm happy for it to make programmes that aren't as successful as other programmes that it makes, as long as we have a BBC um, that's there, not just for television, but for radio as well. I, mean, I, mean, I think we often undervalue the importance of radio and that having a public service broadcaster there for us it's it's not perfect it's not being run brilliantly it needs to be reformed but i think we really really risk losing it at our peril and
2: people have been slagging off the license for 145 pounds a year but you know to me that is very good value it's
1: 40p a day it's 12 pounds a month i mean i'm
2: sure that works out as 40p a day but i I read 12 pounds a month but the thing is that Sky, the cheapest Sky pack, is £21.50 a month, and that doesn't include any movies or sport, which is the, obviously most of the reason that people get Sky. Mm. Nobody's ever tried to find an excuse to go round to a friend's house just because they got Sky living, have they? It's never, it's never <laughs> happened. Nobody's ever gone, oh, yeah, I'm going round Dave Super Sunday double bill, Animal 999 and RSPCA Rescue. <laughs> So, in terms of the BBC, though, they're, they're being attacked, aren't they? I mean, Osborne gave them extra. He's going to have to pay now the TV licence for the over-75s. Osborne was obviously very keen on the, the over-75 votes, but he didn't want to have to pay for it himself, so the BBC are now going to have to pay for the free yeah. TV licences. Pensioners now are doing all right, aren't they? I'll go home and see my dad. Free TV licence. He's got free winter fuel allowance, free bus pass... You go home, the house is boiling, he's got a TV on in every room, and then he drives his car to the fucking
1: bus stop, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and am quite, quite right, too. I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't take one of those benefits away from him, but it's utterly wrong to expect the BBC licence fee to pay for that. I mean, the licence fee in total is just over, I think it's £3.6 billion, something like that, that's how much comes in. 20% of that would have to pay for the over 75s. So that's what 600 and, 600 million pounds. I mean that, that that that's a that's a benefit for the over 75s that the license fee shouldn't be used towards. The government, we should be paying for that through our taxes, through our proper welfare care if that's what we think should happen. If we think the over 75s should get a free licence fee, then we should pay for it and contribute towards that.
2: And the other thing that the, the government are doing is the BBC Trust is being abolished. They've had this review saying now that they're going to it's going to go through Ofcom, but that the government themselves will be electing two-thirds of the BBC board. You know, no longer impartial. The review's been done by some bloke called to David Clementi or something, and you look at what his credentials are. He was deputy governor of the Bank of England and head of Virgin Money. He knows about banks. What does he know about TV? As we found out from the banking
1: crisis, even those people who know about banks don't actually know that much about <laughs> banks. I mean, the, the point is well made. But the separation of regulation of governments, I think, does need to happen, and it doesn't, there needs to be that separation. The trust hasn't worked. But at well the same point, if you
2: have the separation, it shouldn't be the government that are actually Absolutely deciding not. what's going
1: on. Absolutely I mean, I, I, you know, I was astonished when it was made very, very clear that, in fact, the, the Charter, every ten years the BBC negotiates its Charter, and it negotiates the Charter with... the the current government, and there's no parliamentary scrutiny over that. It's actually a decision that is made with the government, by the government of the day. So we don't have any say, really. We get get consulted, and when we're consulted, you know, 97% of us say that we watch BBC on either television, radio, or on the internet at least once a week. So we're all using the BBC, but we have no say in how it's actually managed and how it's run. And and I think that's completely wrong. So not just should the governance change, but the way that the Charter is actually reviewed and agreed to change as well. So it's agreed by Parliament and not just by whoever the Secretary of State happens to be.
2: Okay. well, we're sort of running out of time a little bit. So we're going to move towards our questions now just to prime the audience to get get ready just whilst you're thinking of your questions just to let you know in terms of the next slacktivist action group who the guests are going to be for that we are going to have uh, mary cray who was one of the uh, labor leadership hopefuls last time around director of amnesty uh, kate allen will be here and we've also got uh, comedian and ex pole dancer from the ministry of sound marcus brigstock Will be here, <laughs> so the live, all true. The uh, the live show will be uh, in the Soho Theatre, 25th of April. So please come along if you uh, if you would like to. Also check the website because the uh, in terms of guests coming up, we've got Damien Green MP coming up. We've got David Davis MP, Andrew Mitchell MP. We've also got Andy Zaltzman. We've got Sarah Pascoe. First people lined up for the autumn. So uh, keep checking the website for that. Also. If you've got any questions, if you're listening on the podcast, please contact us. We did uh, questions for guests or any ideas. Amongst the different emails, we had one from David Neal, which was very nice. He said uh, he was very much enjoying the podcast. His only criticism was, could they be longer? So I was thinking that is the sort of criticism you can deal with, isn't it? (laughs) That's very nice. And also, if anybody got any ideas, we've been asked if we could talk to some some people who were... uh, we activists you who've now become activists. Be wanting to hear from some of those, so if you know some of those, or you are one of those, uh, let us know. We will be talking to Laura Corriton, who um, was the lady who came up, she got over 300,000 um, signatures on her petition for the tampon tax, and now... David Cameron has come and said, yes, that is going to happen. It's going to go down to 0% VAT. So, uh, obviously, great news for Laura, and we are uh, very happy about that. I mean, it always seemed ridiculous, didn't it? There's loads of things that were 0% VAT rated. It seemed uh, grossly unfair that sanitary products shouldn't, shouldn't be one of those. It shouldn't be that it should be more tax efficient to put a Jaffa cake in your pants. So. Um, <laughs>
3: And so much so, less absorbent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note,
2: who hands up? Hands up! Who has a question for our panel tonight, ladies and gentlemen? All those hands coming up, I'm sure. There's going excellent. We have a lay down the front here. We'll just get the microphone over to you. So here yeah. we go.
1: Um, my question goes back to your, you mentioning that we gave up on um, changing the voting system, and I just wondered why the Lib Dems had given up on that because we do have a system where. The majority of our vote, votes are completely wasted and uh, if you live in a rich area you have a Tory MP and if you live in a poor area you have a Labour MP?
0: We absolutely haven't given that. That's totally our policy. Uh, we think there should be electoral reform at Westminster and at local authority level. It's in a manifesto in 2015, one of the good bits, and uh, it's sort of in our DNA. Uh, our voting system is bad in a whole set of ways. It doesn't uh, reflect your views in parliament and in local councils It, uh, it undermines diversity it's it in the barrier in the way for more diversified politics so we fundamentally uh, attached to it we just got defeated in the referendum now it wasn't actually a proportional represent- representation question it was on something called av but that was defeated and that set set back the cause for electoral reform but we're still fully committed to it so i hope that reassures you <laughs>
2: perfect there we go so thank you very much ladies and gentlemen for coming and um, if you're listening on the podcast please subscribe it's one click away it's free as well so you know there's, there's no the slacktivists can be very happy about that please click on the equity campaign for the bbc love it or lose it again very simple and spread the word spread the word of the slacktivist action group if we all tell one person who knows with the six degrees of separation how far it can spread ladies and gentlemen provided we don't all tell the same person so uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. We've learned some things tonight, to, Tonight, hopefully. We've learned, obviously, that the, the Lib Dem manifesto, in the words of the, the Energy Secretary, as well, was crap. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it was crap. We, we've also learned certain things about what we can do with equity as well, in terms of what we can fight for. And obviously, we have learned, ladies and gentlemen, if you give free Easter eggs to the audience, we get some decent questions at the end of it. So, all very good. Please give it up for our guest tonight. We have had Ed David. Twisting Pain, Aisha Hazarika, good night and good luck.